Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Thursday, May 11th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. The State Department backs Israel after Gaza airstrikes. So following Israeli airstrikes in Gaza that killed at least 10 civilians, including five children, the State Department said that it supports Israel's right to protect itself. Israel began targeting the Gaza Strip on Tuesday. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry, the initial round of airstrikes killed 15 people, including four children, six other civilians, and three members of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. So in an email, uh, I, I asked the State Department to comment on the airstrikes, and a State Department spokesperson told me, quote, we are closely following the Israeli airstrikes in the Gaza Strip that killed three leaders of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Israel has the right to protect itself and its people from indiscriminate rocket attacks launched by terrorist groups. We are also aware of reports that 10 civilians were tragically killed in the Israeli strikes, we call for all parties to de-escalate the situation, end quote. So that's a pretty strong, uh, you know, endorsement of Israel's operations. They mention the 10 civilians that were reported killed. But, you know, the first part is key there. They support Israel's right to protect itself. They call bombing Gaza and killing 10 civilians protecting themselves. And, you know, if you look at what Israel did there, is that they bombed these uh, Palestinian, these Islamic Jihad guys in, in their homes and they lived in apartment buildings and they killed their families and they killed other uh, people from other uh, families. Um, so look at that ratio, you know, 10 civilians killed, three of the Islamic Jihad guys killed. And then there were two other people killed on Tuesday, but it's not clear exactly who they were from what I've read. And then... Later on Wednesday, the Pentagon said that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spoke with his Israeli counterpart, the Israeli defense minister, and reaffirmed the U.S.'s ironclad support for Israel. So again, uh, giving them this strong support right after this slaughter of civilians. According to the Israeli side, the Israeli defense minister told Austin that Israel was prepared to wage a prolonged campaign in Gaza. So Israeli airstrikes continued in Gaza on Wednesday, and at least six more people were killed, including a 10-year-old girl, so another child, and four fighters for a group called the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. So six more killed. I'm not sure uh, who the sixth person was. Again, uh, this is all still kind of developing. But Wednesday's strikes brought the total death toll to 21, including five children. When asked about the civilian casualties after the first round of airstrikes, the Israeli military said that it was aware of some collateral and did not comment further. The Israeli military has dubbed this offensive Operation Shield and Arrow. So in response to the Israeli airstrikes, the Palestinian Joint Command, which is a group of armed factions, it's kind of an umbrella group of you know Islamic Jihad, and I believe Hamas is included there. Although I'm not sure if it's exactly clear if Hamas is backing this response uh, but anyway, so these groups launched a lot of rockets into Israel. Most of them, you know, fell in open areas or were intercepted. Uh, so far, I have not seen as of, you know, Wednesday night. 
uh, haven't seen any casualties on the Israeli side. And the fighting has shown no sign of waning. Uh, unfortunately, Wednesday night, uh, despite Egypt's efforts to broker a, ce- a ceasefire, and I've seen reports of more airstrikes, so I'm sure that that death toll is going to go up. And, you know, this is, again, this is how Israel operates in Gaza. They bomb residential buildings and they kill tr- children. That's it o- what always happens. This is the biggest flare-up since last summer when a few dozen Palestinians were killed, including, uh, you know, a good amount of children. And then there was a big flare-up in 2021 where over 250 Palestinians were killed, including over 60 children. And after that, uh, the U.S. gave Israel an extra $1 billion in military aid on top of the $3.8 billion that they get each year. Israel said they needed it to replenish their Iron Dome, uh, you know, air defense system but who knows they could have also used it to purchase missiles to bomb gaza with so you know this is why this is an important topic for me to cover is that the u.s government is directly complicit in these bombings and the siege of gaza because of how much support they give israel i mean look at how they respond after they kill a bunch of civilians there um all right the next one here is from middle east eye the the u.s house speaker cancels a historic nakba day event at the capitol building so i thought this was interesting apparently there was going to be an event at the u.s capitol at one of the buildings um uh, about the nakba which is the 75th it's the 75th anniversary of the formation of the state of israel what the palestinians call the nakba or the catastrophe and that's referring to the ethnic cleansing of palestinians the uh at least 750,000 Palestinians were expelled from their lands and homes, you know, by Zionist militias when that happened. And there's going to be an, ev- an event about this commemorating it at the Capitol building. And uh, Rashida Tlaib was going to be there, the, the congresswoman from Michigan. So I just think it's significant that, you know, still it's very small, you know, this kind of opposition to, uh, you know, military aid to Israel, to supporting Israel like that it's still small in congress but still significant the fact that this was even going to go down at the capitol and kevin mccarthy said nope uh he said that he canceled it although i saw some videos on twitter on wednesday night it looks like the event went on i'm not sure if it was in one of the buildings at the capitol or not but anyway mccarthy said instead of you know hosting this event we're gonna host a bipartisan discussion to honor the 75th anniversary of the u.s Israel relationship. So that's how he uh, reacted to that. Um, All right. So the next one here, Kiev seeks more arms for their next counteroffensive. This is from Kyle Anzalone over at the Libertarian Institute. Ukraine's foreign minister said the upcoming counteroffensive would not be the last. The diplomat requested NATO members transfer more advanced weapons to Kiev for the coming operations including F-16s. So Dmitry Kuleba, who's the Ukrainian foreign minister, he said, quote, do not consider this counteroffensive as the last one because we do not know what will come out of it. It means we have to prepare for the next counteroffensive, end quote. So, you know, on to the next one. They haven't even launched the uh, spring counteroffensive that we've been hearing about uh, for so long. Um, but if you go down a bit here, uh, Kuleba He's asking for more weapons. He said, quote, weapons, weapons, and once again, weapons are needed to win in the war. Germany has plenty of them, and much depends on Germany, end quote. And this was in uh, an interview with the German outlet DW. So Kuleba, uh, sorry, this week, the Biden administration announced a $1.2 billion weapons package for Kiev. 
that I went over yesterday. It includes air defense systems, artillery ammunition, but they're purchasing these weapons for Ukraine. So it could take a long time before they get there instead of sending them straight from U.S. military stockpiles. All right, the next one here, Ukraine claims gains near Bakhmut. So Ukrainian military officials on Wednesday claimed that their forces made some gains near the eastern Donbass city of Bakhmut, where Russian forces have been steadily advancing for months. So according to Alexander Sirsky, he's the commander of the Ukrainian ground forces. He said that Ukrainian troops were able to push the Russians back by two kilometers. Uh, which is about 1.2 miles. He wrote on Telegram, quote, in some areas of the contact line, the enemy was unable to withstand the pressure of Ukrainian defenders and retreated to a distance of up to two kilometers, end quote. And I also saw a South Front, which they put out maps. Uh, they published daily maps on the battlefield in Ukraine. Uh, they had in their daily update that uh, Ukraine's armed forces did gain two kilometers in an area Southwest of Bakhmut. Um, so if you're looking at the map here, you see it's pretty far from the center of the city. And they also said that Ru the Russian army made some gains, said that they captured new farmlands uh, to the northwest of Bakhmut. Not clear exactly how much they captured there. Um, but, it, you know, this is the first time I've seen, I think, in, in a while, uh, Ukraine claim any gains around this, this battle of Bakhmut. And... Uh, it came, this news came a day after uh, Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner uh, Wagner group, the mer mercenary force that's been doing most of the fighting for Russia in Bakhmut. He accused uh, regular Russian forces of giving up positions near Bakhmut. Now, this was on Tuesday. So he said, quote, today, everything is being done so that the front line crumbles. Today, one of the defense ministry's units fled one of our flanks, abandoning their positions. Everyone fled, end quote. Prigozhin has continued his criticisms of Russian military leadership, but appears to have backed off on his threat to pull his fighters out of Bakhmut. Prigozhin previously said that he would hand control of the front to a Chechen unit on May 10th. But then he said Moscow had vowed to provide enough ammunition for the brutal battle of Bakhmut. So it sounds like they're staying put, although he has still been very critical. Um, he's putting out a lot of videos and, and audio messages on Telegram. Um, so this battle, this brutal battle of Bakhmut, where lots of people are dying, you know, it's become known as the meat grinder. And there's been all these, you know, you have Prigozhin complaining about ammunition. And there's also been a lot of accounts from of Ukrainian soldiers fighting on the front lines, detailing really horrific situations where, you know, fresh recruits are being thrown in with barely any training, barely any ammunition. I remember one Ukrainian officer who spoke to the Washington Post said that he was getting soldiers that, you know, couldn't, were afraid to shoot their rifle because they thought it was too loud. I mean, that's how unprepared it is and just think about all the people that are uh, dying you know in this battle um all right so the next one here u.s officials are happy that the uk is going to send long-range missiles to ukraine so politico reported on tuesday that u.s officials are breathing a quiet sigh of relief over london's plans to provide ukraine with longer range missiles a final decision has not been made, but the UK is preparing to send Kiev missiles with a strike capability of up to 300 kilometers or 186 miles, which is about the same range as the Army tactical missile systems, the ATACMS, that Ukraine has been requesting 
from the U.S. The missiles that the U.S. is expected to provide, sorry, that the U.K. is expected to provide are the Storm Shadow missiles, which are air-fired and could be used by Ukraine's Soviet-era fighter jets. And the, the U.S. made attackums, they would be fired out of the HIMARS rocket systems, uh, the artillery systems. So U.S. officials who spoke with Politico said that they hoped the U.K. providing such missiles, you know, they're saying, OK, so the U.K. is going to send these missiles. Ukraine will get this strike capability uh, and we won't have to hear uh, the complaints and the criticism anymore from, you know, the Republican hawks and other hawks in, in Congress. I mean, I think they're wrong. I think if the U.K. sends them, then they're going to say, so why don't we send them too?" you know, I think it's kind of they're. Uh, being a little too optimistic about that here, but at least it's it, what's good is that it sounds like the U.S. is still holding off on sending these attackums, even if the British go ahead with their plan. These officials said that they don't plan on sending uh, longer-range missiles because long-range missiles come with with the risk of escalation. Um, you know, leaks from the the Discord leaks showed that uh, suggested that that Zelensky would use, you know, long range missiles to target Russian territory, even though Ukrainian officials have said that they wouldn't. According to this political report, the UK is seeking some assurances that Ukraine would not use the missiles to hit targets inside Russia. Although I don't know how serious the British are about that. They don't seem to be concerned with escalation, but, uh, and even regardless, you know, the, the Ukraine and the U.S. and the U.K., they don't consider Crimea to be Russian territory. So these restrictions won't apply to Crimea. Uh, but an attack on the on the peninsula could be just as escalatory as hitting, you know, the Russian mainland uh, in, in Moscow's view. So there's just a huge risk here. Um, it's not clear exactly when the British are going to be sending these missiles, but it sounds like they're going to be heading over there soon. And who knows what Russia's response will be. Uh, all right, the next one here, this is from Responsible Statecraft, and it is a poll that says less than half of Republicans have confidence in Zelensky. So this is interesting. This is from Connor Eccles. So less than half of Republicans have confidence in Ukrainian President Zelensky to do the right thing regarding world affairs, according to a new poll from the Pew Research Center, Center that highlights the growing partisan divide over the war in Ukraine. Only 44% of Republican respondents said that they had confidence in Zelensky, while 71% of Democrats expressed support for the wartime leader. That's a pretty big difference. The divide held when respondents were asked if they held favorable views of Ukraine in general. 52% of Republicans said they did, and 70% of Democrats said they had a positive opinion uh, of the country. The survey joins a long list of recent polls showing that the Republican base is re increasingly skeptical of U.S. policy toward Ukraine. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, Republican leadership in Congress and most Republicans are still all for it. Uh, but, you know, I don't want to dismiss the, the group of Republicans that are against it because it is small, but it's a significant number uh, of Republicans, um, you know, that that don't think the U.S. should keep arming Ukraine. It's not nothing, but unfortunately, it's not nearly enough to to stop it. Uh, all right, so I just want to mention again, it's still our fundraiser, and we could really use your help uh, so we could try to get this thing wrapped up. And if, if you want to support the show, you know, if you enjoy this show, this is how we do it. You know, this is how we get by, is that we are entirely reliant on our readers at antiwar.com. 
And if you go to antiwar.com slash donate, you can see the different ways that you can support us. Make a one-time donation with a credit card, PayPal, or crypto monthly donation. You know, a lot of our supporters uh, set that up, and that that's a really a big help. So anything, uh, you know, you can spare. And you can also help us out just by, you know, sharing the fundraiser with people, sharing the website, telling them about this show, antiwar.com. All that really, really helps. Um, All right. So back to the news here. China says that it is in touch with all parties on Ukraine ceasefire. So Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang said Tuesday that China would communicate with all relevant parties in its efforts to push for a ceasefire in Ukraine. Qin made the comments alongside his German counterpart, Annalena Baerbach, in Berlin. So he said, quote, as a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council and responsible major country, China will neither watch the fire from the other bank nor add fuel to the fire. China is willing to maintain communication with relevant parties, including Germany, to achieve an early ceasefire. End quote. So after Chinese President Xi Jinping recently held a call with Zelensky, Beijing announced that it would send a special envoy to Ukraine to work toward a ceasefire. China is sending Li Hu, who is a fluent Russian speaker, and he served as the Chinese ambassador to Russia for 10 years until 2019. Other countries have joined Beijing's uh, calls for peace in Ukraine, including Brazil. And Lula, uh, the Brazilian president, he said on Tuesday that he would offer Brazil as a mediator to settle the war in Ukraine on the sidelines of the G7 summit in Japan later this month. I guess he's attending that summit. So uh, Chin also warned against EU plans to sanction Chinese companies for allegedly supporting Russia's war effort. So according to the Financial Times, the EU has a list of potential sanctions. That includes eight Chinese companies over claims that they're selling equipment that could be used in weapons. Chin uh, said, quote, there is a normal exchange and cooperation between Chinese and Russian companies. This must not be disrupted. We are against states introducing extra territorial or one-sided sanctions on China or any other country according to their own domestic laws. And if that were to happen, we would react strictly and firmly. We will defend the legitimate interests of our country and our companies, end quote. All right, so the next one here, Putin says that the West has unleashed a real war on Russia. So this was from uh, the other day on Tuesday. He gave his speech at Russia's Victory Day when they celebrate, uh, you know, the Soviet victory over the Nazis uh, in World War II. This is from Connor Freeman and Will Porter at the Libertarian Institute. So President Vladimir Putin declared that all of Russia is united in support of its troops, claiming that they face a real war intended to destroy their country during his annual Victory Day speech in Moscow's Red Square on Tuesday. Celebrated on May 9th in Russia, Victory Day is the country's yearly commemoration to honor the Soviet troops who defeated the forces of Nazi Germany during World War II. Uh, Putin said, quote, Today our civilization is at a crucial turning point. A real war is being waged against our country again, but we have countered international terrorism and will defend the people of Donbass and safeguard our security, end quote. The Russian leader declaimed that Moscow seeks peace and stability while railing against American exceptionalism and Western Western globalist elites. He said these forces pit countries against one another with coup plots and proxy conflicts. 
such as the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Kiev and Ukraine's subsequent war on Russian-speaking separatists in the eastern Donbass region. These actions preceded Putin's invasion, and the president has repeatedly cited the need to defend the people of the Donbass as a justification for what he calls his special military operation. Putin said, quote, For us, for Russia, there is no unfriendly or hostile nation, either in the West or in the East, just like the vast majority of people on this planet. We want to see a peaceful, free, and stable future. Russians believe that any ideology of superiority is abhorrent, criminal, and deadly by its nature. However, the Western globalist elite keeps elites keep speaking about their exceptionalism, pit nations against each other, and split societies, provoke bloody, bloody conflicts and coups, sow hatred, Russophobia, aggressive nationalism, destroy family and traditional values, which make us all human, end quote. Um, yeah, so, you know, there's some more here to his speech if you want to go check it out. And, you know, he says some pretty specific criticisms of the West and U.S. foreign policy. You know, a lot of it is just about, you know, global domination. Uh, that's kind of a, lot, a big part of the neocon philosophy that is driving our policy. And that's why they can't stand to have, you know, Russia have uh, control over, you know, Eastern or influence, not even control, uh, influence over Eastern Ukraine. All right. Uh, the next one here, uh, Taiwan warns against the U S blowing up chip factories. So Taiwan's defense minister, this was on Monday. He pushed back against the idea of the U S bombing the islands, semiconductor factories in the event of a Chinese invasion. Representative Seth Moulton, Democrat from Massachusetts. He recently said that the U S should Quote, make it very clear to the Chinese that if you invade Taiwan, we're going to blow up TSMC, end quote. And he's referring to Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which produces the majority of the world's advanced semiconductors. So when asked about Mutlin's uh, comments, Moulton, oh man, I pronounced his name wrong, Seth, Seth Moulton, when he, when he was asked about his comments, Taiwanese Defense Minister Chu Kuo Chang said that the military would not let that happen and not let the facilities be bombed. He said, quote, it is, it is the military's obligation to defend Taiwan, and we will not tolerate any others blowing up our facilities, end quote. So the idea of bombing Taiwan's chip factories to avoid them coming under Chinese control is gaining popularity in Washington. A paper published in 2021 by the U.S. Army War College suggested the U.S. and Taiwan should plan scorched earth tactics that could render Taiwan not just unattractive if ever seized by force, but positively costly to maintain. So destroy Taiwan before uh, China can take it over. And the paper said the tactic could be done, quote, most effectively by threatening to destroy facilities belonging to the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, the most important chipmaker in the world and China's most important supplier, end quote. So Robert O'Brien, who served as President Trump's national security advisor, recently called for bombing Taiwan's factories if China attacks. He seems to be a proponent of this idea. And O'Brien, you know, he was Trump's national security advisor. Uh, but he's not like a Trump guy who's been ostracized or anything. He's still very much, uh, you know, in with the the crowd in D.C. And this is something that that he believes the U.S. should do or threaten to do is bomb these facilities. 
And I think, you know, this type of rhetoric, it's so reckless because it, I think it's, um, you know, it shows the Taiwanese that they don't care about, you know, their, you know, the island or their resources. Um, Well, obviously they care about their resources. But what I mean is they don't care about the Taiwanese. They just don't want the island and its resources to be under China's control. And they would rather see it destroyed um, than ending up, you know, under China's control. All right, the last story here in the news section, Biden to sign a military deal with Papua New Guinea. So as I went over yesterday, the White House announced that Biden's going to be visiting Papua New Guinea and that the U.S. and this country have been in talks on signing a military deal. And now Papua New Guinea's foreign minister is saying that when Biden comes to visit, they're going to sign a deal. And they're also going to sign a surveillance deal as well. So the engagement and cooperation with Papua New Guinea is part of the U.S. strategy to counter China in the region. PNG Foreign Minister uh, Justin Takchenko, he said the DCA, which is the Defense Cooperation Agreement with the U.S., was finalized last week. So he said that means now when Biden comes here, they can sign it. And as part of the deal, the U.S. is going to double the aid that it provides to Papua New Guinea bringing the, the total to $32 million. So the details of this military agreement are not clear. Papua New Guinea officials have previously said that it will focus on the U.S. training their forces, and Biden is going to sign a separate deal that will allow the U.S. Coast Guard to patrol the exclusive economic zone of Papua New Guinea, which extends 200 nautical miles from the nation's coast. And the Coast Guard agreement will also include satellite data sharing. So PNG foreign ministers said, quote, we will be able to utilize the U.S. satellite security systems. Once we sign that, it will help monitor our waters, which we can't at the moment. It will be a fantastic agreement protecting our natural resources from being illegally poached and stolen, especially our fishing, end quote. So, you know, when it comes to the military deal, I mean, who knows where this could lead? It, it could eventually lead to U.S. troops or warships being uh, based in Papua New Guinea in another area. And this whole, all these Pacific Island nations here, you know, this is going to be a big, um, there's a lot uh, happening. You know, the U.S. is taking a lot of steps to increase their military and diplomatic presence uh, all over here. So that's a big uh, area for, you know, when it comes to the U.S., trying to counter China in the region. All right, uh, that's it for the news. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Bryce Green over at FAIR. Ukraine's press freedom score increases despite martial law banned media. One from Ted Snyder. China and Russia's worldview is one of multipolarity, not bipolarity. Ramsey Baroud, how Kadir Adnan unified Palestinians from his prison cell. And one from Alfred Dezayas, lessons not learned from the Pentagon Papers. And then our spotlight is from Scott Horton, our editorial director over at the Orange County Register. U.S. meddling contributed to the Russia war Ukraine. It's time we stop meddling around the world. Uh, that sounds good to me. Um, again, help us out with our fundraiser if you can, antiwar.com slash donate. We appreciate any help. And, uh, you know, if you help us finish it up, you don't have to hear me talking about it anymore. Uh, but that's it for me for today. Also, share the show around. Um, you can watch on YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble. I'm going to be posting it on Twitter now. 
And of course, the listen to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, if if that's how you would prefer to digest uh, all this news. That's it for me for today. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.